Hi, and welcome to worship. I'm Pastor Jason from Schweitzer. It is so good to have you with us today. I hope you're having an awesome fall. I love the fall, love October. Also glad that we can be together in worship. It's fantastic. Today, if you're new, we're so glad you've joined us. We hope you'll check in. We've got a, a gift card from Starbucks that we'd love to send you. It's a great time. They've got a bunch of fun fall drinks. You're going to love it. This week, we're in week six of our Elijah series, and we're going to hear about a murder of a guy by the name of Naboth. We're also going to hear about how the Lord stirs up Elijah and Ahab and see what the Lord has to say to us. If you'd like to follow along deeper with the sermon, if you'd like to go deeper, we encourage you to go to sumc.co slash next for some sermon questions and also places you could join up with a small group and discuss what's happening here with the sermon. Next up is Stephanie. She's going to share with us some things that are happening here at Schweitzer. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Next Sunday, October 24th, from 3 to 5, we're hosting a big outdoor fall festival here at Schweitzer. This will be an afternoon filled with activities, including a pumpkin patch, a costume contest, games, live music, and lots more. We really hope to see you there, and we hope you bring some friends with you. We're also looking for volunteers to help with games and to decorate your cars as a part of the trunk or treat. You can find out more information and sign up to learn more about the day at sumc.co slash next. We are currently collecting donations for our Flourish Food Pantry at Schweitzer. For the next couple of weeks, you'll find donation bins in the fellowship area as well as outside the church office. Please drop off donations to help stock up the food pantry. You can find a shopping list in the fellowship area or also online at sumc.co slash next. Last week in the message, Pastor Jason talked about the importance of not going through life alone. To help with this mission, here at Schweitzer, we have groups and classes of all sizes that meet on and off campus. If you're looking for a place to connect, you can learn more about these opportunities today in the lobby or by going online at sumc.co slash next. Thanks, Stephanie, for those ways we can connect. If you're worshiping with us live, we'd encourage you to take a moment, say hello in the chat, let others know that you're here. If you'd like prayer, there's somebody here who would love to pray with you. Today is a great day to worship. The Lord has given us breath. He's called us forth from our beds. He's awakened us. And we can lift our arms and our praises in worship. So let's enter into worship, magnifying His holy name. Let's go.
Friends, as I said at the introduction, today we're going to hear a story about Naboth and Ahab and, and Jezebel and how Naboth is this guy who gets his land stolen from him and his life taken away. Some profound injustices. And we know that there are in our own lives and the lives of people around us injustices that take place. And sometimes injustices take place because of the actions we take. So as we come to a time of prayer, one of the things that the Lord invites all of us to do is to come with a heart that's open and a mouth that's true with confession. So as we enter into a time of prayer, I want to invite you to name some things to God, whether they're wounds in your life that you've experienced because of some kind of injustice that's been done to you, or maybe there's some injustices that you've just been carrying in your own heart um, that are are happening in our communities or in our world. Or maybe there's something that you've been a part of or you're, you're actively doing right now that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and say, there's something that isn't right about this. And you're not loving your neighbors as you love yourself or you love God. And so just for a moment, I invite you to take an opportunity and, and sit before God. Name some things to God about where you're at. Let's confess our need for him to him. You have a way of speaking into our lives both when we're hurt 
when we feel the hurt of others, and when we're the people who are doing the hurting. You have a way of blowing your Holy Spirit across our lives and helping us hear your kind words of mercy and justice and truth. So today, with whatever we've named to you, take these places, these things, these moments. Do your good work in us. Where we're wounded, heal us. Where we wound others, help us. Help us to stop. Help us to seek your help. Help us to turn to your community. Where we bear the burdens of others, help us to lay that down at your feet so that we might know how to bear them as Christ. Take all of our prayers, we pray. Take them up into your holy mysteries and bless us and bless your world. And now I invite you, dear friends, to pray with me the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey friends, one of the fantastic things that's happening at Schweitzer this week is there's a women's retreat and about 50 women of all generations have made their way to Branson, Missouri this weekend to grow together and also to grow deeper in their faith. It's both fellowship and discipleship, seeking after the Lord. Um, this group or this event was put together by a, by a whole host of other women through Schweitzer and it's just a, an awesome thing. This and other events are made possible because of your generosity, your faithfulness in giving tithes and offerings. And we can continue to worship today with our tithes and offerings by going to sumc.co slash give or using the church app. We're so thankful for your faithful giving. We're so thankful for this event that's taking place this week that's blessing a whole host of folks. Now, we're going to watch the text for week six of Elijah. And then Pastor Spencer is going to share with us about Elijah, a person just like us. Let's take a listen. This is the story of Elijah. Someone just like us. Naboth, the Jezreelite, owned a vineyard in Jezreel that bordered the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. One day Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Your vineyard is near my house. Why don't you hand it over to me so I can make a vegetable garden out of it? I will trade you a better vineyard for it, or I can pay you if you prefer. But Naboth told Ahab, Not on your life. So help me God, I'd never sell the family farm to you. Frustrated and upset by Naboth's reply, Ahab went back into his house. He went to bed that night without eating anything. Jezebel, his wife, noticed his sour mood. She said, What is wrong with you? 
Why are you not eating anything? This isn't like you. He told her, Naboth refuses to give me his vineyard. I even offered to give him a different vineyard or to pay him. Jezebel said, Are you not the king of Israel? Is this any way for a king to act? Up, on your feet, eat. Don't worry, I'll take care of this. I'll get his vineyard for you. So Jezebel composed some letters, signed them with Ahab's name, pressed his seal on them, and sent them to the leaders and noblemen who lived in the city with Naboth. She wrote, Call for a fast day and put Naboth at the head table. Have two worthless men with questionable morals sit before him. Instruct these men to accuse Naboth of blasphemy against both God and the king. After this testimony has been given, take Naboth outside and stone him to death. And they did it. The leaders and noblemen of the city followed Jezebel's instructions precisely, and they had Naboth stoned to death. When Jezebel heard that her plan had worked, she told Ahab, Go for it, Ahab. Naboth is dead. His vineyard is yours. At once, Ahab set out for the vineyard and claimed it as his own. Meanwhile, God visited Elijah and instructed him to go and confront Ahab. When Elijah reached the vineyard, he said to Ahab, What's going on here? First murder, then theft? This is God's message to you. The very spot where the dogs lapped up Naboth's blood, they'll soon lap your blood as well. Ahab answered Elijah, My enemy, you've discovered what I've done. Yes, I've found you out, said Elijah, because you have sold your soul to wickedness in God's eyes. God will most certainly bring doom upon you. He will wipe out your descendants and cut you off from everyone in Israel, leaving you completely alone, all because you've made God so angry by causing Israel to sin. Dogs will devour Jezebel and anyone tainted by Ahab. Ahab, pushed by his wife Jezebel and in open defiance of God, had set an all-time record committing evil in the eyes of God. He had been incredibly wicked, indulging in idol worship and other terrible atrocities. When Ahab heard what Elijah had to say, he ripped his clothes to shreds and dressed himself in sackcloth. He fasted, rested in depression, and kept quiet. Then God spoke to Elijah. Have you witnessed Ahab's repentance? He has shed his pride and wickedness and humbled his heart before me. Therefore, I will not send evil against his house while he is still alive. Instead, I will send it during the lifetime of his son. Well, 
Well, welcome today. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad that you're here with us. Uh, This is part six of our series on Elijah. We're spending eight weeks reading his story from the Bible. And of course, Elijah is one of those people in the Bible who is just so, so inspiring. He is bold and brave. He's got so much conviction. He lives his convictions even when it costs him. Uh, He sees all kinds of miraculous things happen to him that the Lord is at work in his life. It's just so Uh, so inspiring. So we're reading through his story. And sometimes as you read through heroes in the Bible, it's easy to forget that these people, whether it's Elijah or Moses, uh, Paul, Peter, these kinds of people, it's easy to forget that these people are are that. They're they're people just like us, hence the title of this series. Elijah's a man just like us. He has the same temptations and struggles, doubts. We've seen that in this series. And yet, God is able to use him in just incredible ways. So one of my hopes for this series is that as we go through this, you might be encouraged to see that God can move through you and use you just like anyone else, even people like Elijah. So today is 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, we've just seen the video that tells us the story of this, the sale of the vineyard. And, and, and honestly, uh, 1 Kings 21 is a, is a chapter in the Bible that's a little bit um, underwhelming to me. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm just not surprised by the story. I mean, at first glance, it kind of seems like it's just a bad real estate deal. The king wants the vineyard and the guy doesn't want to sell it. And so it doesn't work out. And then, and then, you know, the powerful politicians, they use their power for themselves and, and they are all kinds of corrupt. And it's just, it's one of those things where I just, I read this story and it's, it's a little bit underwhelming because I just, I'm left thinking to myself is this is just, it just feels very familiar. I mean, this is how the world has always worked and still works. Powerful people using them, their power for themselves, full of corruption. And it's just, it's just one of those things where I just like, ah, it just, it just feels very, very familiar. But there's also a lot more at work here than maybe meets the eye. And so to really dig at this, it's really helpful to understand what, why does Naboth not want to sell the land to King Ahab? So 1 Kings 21 verse 3 tells us very clearly why Naboth doesn't want to sell the land. And here's what he says. It says, Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. That's the question. That's the point there. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Pay attention to that line there, the inheritance of my ancestors. Everything hinges on how Naboth doesn't want to give up the inheritance of his ancestors. So what does that mean? Well, when you read through the Old Testament, one of the major themes of the Old Testament is land. And this is one of those themes that is so big that if you don't grasp how important this theme is, there is so much of the Old Testament and really a whole lot of the New Testament that's just going to go right over your head because this theme is just, it's woven through so much of the Old Testament, this theme of land. Let me show you what I mean. So if you go back to Genesis, the very beginning of of the story of Israel, um, God calls Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And when God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the very first thing God says to Abraham is about land. I mean, this is like a pivotal point in the Bible where where God is going to call to Abraham and, and through Abraham, there's going to be this great move of God that, that is through Abraham's family that, that the earth will be blessed and eventually the Savior will come. But it, it starts with this promise about land. Here's what God says to Abraham at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And this land, of course, is the land of Canaan, which um, is the promised land. This land will eventually, of course, become known as as Israel. And and this this promise is the very first thing that God speaks over Abraham in this pivotal, pivotal, pivotal piece of the Bible. 
And it's not just that God speaks this over Abraham. He speaks this over Abraham's descendants. So Abraham's son Isaac receives the same promise. This is Genesis um, chapter 35, uh, 26, verse 3. It says, For to you and your descendants, this is to Isaac, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. And then to Isaac's son Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, the Lord says this to Jacob. 35.12, Genesis 35.12, the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. And of course, as the story goes on in the Bible, Jacob has 12 sons, his 12 sons and himself, they go to live in Egypt, and generations later, they're enslaved, and for generations and generations, they are, they are slaves in Egypt, until another like pivotal point in the Bible emerges. And God calls to Moses to go and free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And God calls to Moses in this like pivotal, pivotal scene through this burning bush. And he reveals his name to Moses. I am who I am, which in Hebrew is the word Yahweh, the, the proper name for God. And, and as God calls to Abraham, one of the things that he speaks to him in this pivotal, pivotal scene in the Bible is he speaks to him about land. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 17. It says, the Lord says to Moses, I have promised to bring you, that is the Israelites, the people, up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, otherwise, of course, known as the promised land. Like this theme is just woven through so many places. After Moses comes and he leads the people of Israel out of slavery and, and they cross through the Red Sea and they get the Ten Commandments, and then they wander in the desert for a generation. Well, a new leader emerges. His name is Joshua. So Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land, not Moses, but Joshua. Moses just sees it from a distance. When Joshua is, is getting ready to lead the people, the Lord speaks to Joshua and he says this. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So, so throughout the story, one of the central promises that God gives to the people of Israel is this promise of land, this promised land that is, that is theirs. And, 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 and oftentimes this land, as we just read in Joshua, it's connected to this other word, inheritance. That the land is the inheritance that the Lord is giving to the people of Israel. We saw it in Joshua. We see this in lots of places in the Old Testament book of the law. Um, Leviticus chapter 20, for instance, says it like this. It says, but I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out, brought you apart from the nations. It's all over the prophets. Um, Isaiah chapter 57, for instance, says it like this. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. This theme is all over the Psalms. So Psalm 37 verse 9 says it like this. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Now, you might hear me read just verse after verse after verse about the land. And you, and you might be thinking to yourself, okay, okay, I get it. You're, you're being a little redundant here. I, I get it. This is an important theme in the Bible. And if you're thinking that, like, yeah, 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 you, you've read enough Bible verses. I, I get what you're trying to say. You're being redundant. And, and, and I would just say, yes, I am being redundant. And I'm doing that very much on purpose because I want you to grasp how important and big this theme of land is in the Bible. Because it's one of those themes that if you miss it, you will miss so much of what the Old Testament is about and what it's driving towards. This, this promise, this inheritance that the Lord has offered His people that's shown through the land, this inheritance that He has given to them. You see, for an individual Israelite, 
when they looked at the land that they had, it wasn't like this individual Israelite would have looked at this land and thought to themselves that, oh, this is what my father and my mother gave me. This is my family's land. Or, or an individual Israelite wouldn't look at the land and think, oh, this is you know, what I worked for and I bought this and this is part of my real estate portfolio. That's not how they would have viewed this land that they lived in in Israel. No, 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 no. This, this land was a, was a sign. It was a, a symbol of the promise of God given to the people of Israel. It was a, it was a sacred symbol of the, of the purpose that God has for the Israelite people as the covenant people, the people that God is going to use to bless the world. The, an individual Israelite, they're going to look at their land holdings that they have. And what they see in that is that, is that this is a sign that I belong to the people of Israel because this is what God has given to them. And so therefore, I belong to the Lord. This is a sacred thing that's all wrapped up in their identity as the covenant people of God, the purpose that God has for them. And so when Ahab and Jezebel come up to Naboth's vineyard and doesn't want to sell, it's, it's not because the price isn't right. It's because this is a sacred thing that God has given him that he belongs to the people of Israel. The purposes of God are being done in his life and he gets to see it. And this is the symbol of that, this, this land that he lives on. And so with Ahab and Jezebel, as they wrongly take this land, it's, it's not just that this is an abuse of power. It's, it's not just that this is powerful people using their powerful ways to do whatever they want to do. It's not just that they are corrupt and that they're going to do whatever they want to do. It's not just that they're incredibly sinful in how they take away the land from Naboth um, by breaking just like a ton of Ten Commandments. I mean, think about it. They covet the land. They falsely accuse him. Uh, they arrange for his murder. Uh, they, they eventually steal the land, and they probably, I don't know, did it on the Sabbath. Like, there's just Ten Commandment after Ten Commandments being broken here. It's not... But that's not really what, what this is about. That's not really why Elijah confronts them. What this is really about on a much deeper level is that Ahab and Jezebel are living their lives opposed to God's purposes. This is why the tie into the land is so important because the land is a symbol to us here. It's a sign of God's purposes. And so for these leaders to disregard the purposes of God, this inheritance that God has given to Naboth, is really to disregard the purpose of God for the people of Israel. There's a much deeper issue of how Ahab and Jezebel are, are choosing to be the Lord instead of allowing the Lord to be the Lord. This is, this is them putting themselves first before the purposes of God and, and not pursuing the purposes of God, but really just standing opposed to the purpose of God that he has for his covenant people of Israel. Now, as I say that, of course, I... I can't help but also think about how Jesus talks about what it means to follow him. Because in a lot of the same ways, Christian discipleship is, is comes down to the purposes of God. And it, and it comes down to submitting ourselves to God's purposes instead of living our lives for ourselves. Like in the same ways, there's so many similarities to how Elijah confronts Ahab and Jezebel for how they steal Naboth's vineyard to to how we are called to live for God's purposes and not our own. I think about how Jesus describes what it means to follow him in, in Matthew chapter 16, for instance. Really famous verse, but in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to start reading in verse 13. This is how Jesus describes what it means to be his disciples. We're going to set it up a little bit with a little bit of reading before this, and then he's going to get to this. But in verse 13, here's what it says. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a phrase that that's really means the Messiah, the Christ, the, the one that God is sending in order to save Israel and to save the world. Like, like this is God's purpose. Who do people think is going to be living and leading people into God's purposes? And they respond back with a very first century Jewish answer. And here's what they say. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's highly significant here that Elijah is mentioned as maybe a a son of a son of man that they, that he is maybe the rescuer because Elijah of course is somebody who stood opposed to the evil in the world and he is somebody who submitted himself to God's purposes and and he put God's purposes before himself so he, of course Elijah will be mentioned like this but Jesus as he keeps going here he doesn't leave this in the theoretical what do people say that the son of man is he's not like you know, what, what do people think about the religious, you know, ideology and philosophy here? Let's talk theology. No, no, no. Jesus is going to make this really personal. And so then he turns to his disciples and, and he says this. He says, but what about, what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus says this in the plural, like to all of his disciples who are gathered there. It'd be like he's saying, you know, who do, who do you say that I, who do, who do y'all say that I am? And and uh, he says this to everybody, all, all the 12 disciples who are gathered there, but only one disciple um, speaks up. And if you know the Bible very well and you've read through the New Testament, you might have gotten to know the disciples a little bit. And, and maybe you could predict who the one disciple is who raises his voice at this moment. And you wouldn't be surprised, of course, that it's Peter. Because, because Peter is, is that disciple, that friend, who doesn't know what a rhetorical question is. Do you have friends like this? Like, like Peter's that friend who can't stand a moment of silence. He's got to fill it with some sort of words. He can't, he can't just let there be silence in, in, in the moment. Do you, do, you, do you have friends like this? I mean, I think we all have friends like this. And, and I, yeah, I hate to break it to you, but if you can't think of a friend like this, that probably means it's you. He's that person who just can't help but say something. And so Jesus says this to, to everybody. And then this is what Peter says back. Peter says, uh, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Verse, verse uh, 17, Jesus replied, probably just a little bit surprised. Jesus replied, Whoa, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock of the confession that he's just made here, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's quite a promise. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. This is certainly a promise we should remember more often. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. And we should also give Peter some love here because Peter has, has answered correctly for once in his life and he had the right answer. And Jesus kind of, I think it's a little bit blown away by this. Now we skip down just a couple verses and here's what Jesus says immediately after that conversation. And what he says next is so, so important. And it, and it gets to what Elijah was really confronting Ahab and Jezebel about. So let's read this next line here. This is verse 22. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, we, of course, read this on the other side of history. 
and we're Christians and we know the story and we know how what Jesus is talking about here with his death is about leading to the cross, which of course the cross leads to the empty grave and the victory of Jesus and the salvation that he's brought to us. Like we know this, but imagine just for a second that, that you were Peter or James or John or any of these other disciples and you didn't know that. Like what would you do if you heard Jesus, your, your best friend, talking about his, his death? Well, I'll tell you what you would do. You try to talk him out of it because he's talking about his death. This is like he shouldn't be having that conversation. And, and I don't know about you, but in, in my line of work, I, I talk uh, to people about their death on a fairly regular basis. And listen, I'm somebody who, like, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in life everlasting. Like, I believe in these things. I'm banking on them. I'm depending on them. But, but at the same time, when I find myself in conversations, when I'm talking to someone about their death, it's still uncomfortable. Like it's never something that's an eager conversation. So imagine that you're Peter or James or John or one of these disciples and Jesus is talking about his death. How uncomfortable would you feel at this point? Because you, you would want to talk him out of it. And so again, Jesus, he said this to all of his disciples. All 12 disciples are there and he's talking about how the chief priests, the temple, uh, the teachers of the law are going to kill him and this is what's going to happen. And all of them hear this, but again, only one speaks up <laughs> and you can guess who it is. Here's what we read the next, very next line. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Bad idea. Don't rebuke Jesus. And so he said, never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And so then we just keep reading here. Listen to this. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. I'm going to read that last line again. So, so, so important. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Keep reading here. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Matthew 16 is, is probably the clearest description in the Bible of what Christian discipleship looks like. What Christian discipleship looks like, what it means to follow Jesus, is that we set aside our own human concerns for the concerns of God. That's what it means, that we, that we take on God's concerns for our life and for others and for the world instead of our own concerns for our life, for others and the world. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It, it, it means that you are going to deny yourself what it is that you want, your goals, ambitions, and dreams about life in order to live for God's purposes. It means that you have to put to death how, how you think the world should work in order to, to live how God says the world should work. It, it means that you've got to, to set aside what it is that you are planning for your life in order to live for God's purposes for your life and for the world. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means that, it means that you are going to let him run the show of your life and not you, that, that he is going to be the Lord and not you. That's what it means to be a Christian disciple is that you're gonna live for God's purposes 
and not your own purposes. And this is exactly why Elijah comes to confront Ahab and Jezebel, because they have put their own concerns first. They've put their own purposes first. They're not living for the Lord's purposes. They've made themselves out to be the Lord. And, and of course, when you make yourself out to be the Lord, it's no, no wonder that you would do what Ahab and Jezebel does. It's no wonder at all, because of course, if, if you're the Lord of everything, if you've put yourself in the middle, well, well of course you're going to be selfish. I mean, if you put yourself in the middle of everything and you're calling the shots and everything, of course you're going to covet what other people have. Of, of course you're going you're gonna to take shortcuts to get what you want. Of, of course you're going to step on people and you're not going to care about who you hurt. Of, of course you're going to put yourself first. That's what you're going to do. And this is exactly what Ahab and Jezebel do because, because they've put themselves first. And so this is what Elijah comes to confront is that, is that they've made themselves out to be the Lord instead of the Lord being the Lord. And, and now they're living for their own purposes instead of God's purposes for themselves and for the people of Israel. They've got it all backwards. And, and if you think about it, Elijah's entire ministry has been about confronting this. We're going to talk about this more next week as well, but Elijah's whole ministry has been about confronting this basic paradigm that's wrong where Ahab and Jezebel have put themselves first instead of living according to God's purposes. And so if you're going to be a follower of Jesus and you're going to confess him as your Savior and as your Lord, it's not just that we are trusting in Jesus to save us. It's not just that we are are finding him to be the, sal- the savior and forgiving of us of our sins. It's not just that he gives us life eternal, but it's also that we are submitting our lives to him and his purposes. It's also that we are turning over our lives to him for him to run the show. It's also that we are setting aside our own concerns for the concerns of God, that we are denying ourselves in order to live for Christ. This is also what it means because he is our Lord, which of course is a lot easier said than done. I mean, to say that Jesus is, is Lord is going to be one of those things that is a lifetime growth um, perspective. It's a lifetime kind of thing. It's not like there's one prayer that you pray where Jesus becomes your Lord and that's it. You're like, ooh, got that done. Now Jesus is Lord of my life. No, no, no. Making Jesus Lord of your life is one of those things that you have to come back to over and over and over and over and over again because you grow into this. You also at times find yourself distracted and you run after other things. You put yourself first and there's all kinds of ways that you start to kind of creep your own purposes back in your life instead of God. And so you just have to come back to this over and over and over and over again for him to be the Lord of our life. For me, one of the most helpful tools that I have used to come back to this over and over and over again in my own life is a, is a prayer. And if you've been in our church for a while, you you've, are familiar with this prayer. It's not a prayer that I wrote or came up with. It's, a, it's an old, old prayer. It's called the Wesley Covenant Prayer, and it dates back to the very beginning of the Methodist movement. And the whole prayer is really about setting ourselves in the proper perspective to understand that I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for God's purposes in the world and for me. I'm not just going to live for what I want. I'm going to live for what God wants. And so it's a prayer that just kind of, it just brings us back to this. And so I find myself at different times in my life praying this prayer on a regular basis, like different seasons of my life. I come back to this prayer and I just, I pray it for days or weeks or months and just come back to this prayer over and over and over again because it helps me remember and to reset this. I found myself praying this prayer in, in seasons of high stress because sometimes when you're in seasons of high stress, it's very easy to become distracted 
and you don't live for God's purposes anymore, but instead you're stressed out. So you're just, you're living for yourself and, and, and you start to take some shortcuts. And this is how sometimes in high stress, you, you, you need to come back to this. And so I find myself when in seasons of high stress, praying this prayer over and over and over again. When I have big decisions to make, I find myself praying this prayer because I don't want to make big decisions just about me and what benefits me. I want to make this big decisions about what benefits God's work. And I want to be part of this. And so I want to pray God's purposes over me, over our church, over my family. I pray, you know, God's purposes for this. And so I come back to this prayer and I pray it over and over again. And just, and I live with this as I submit myself back to the Lord. I even find myself praying this when I go through seasons of maybe where I have conflict with other people. Because sometimes when you have conflict with people, again, you, you find your perspective getting shifted and, and you start to focus maybe on your own hurt instead of God's purposes in that relationship. And so I find myself praying this prayer then. But it's these, it's these seasons when when I know that I, I could step out of God's purposes and start to live for my own. So let me read this prayer to you. Again, it's very old. Um, it's Wesley Covenant Prayer, but here's how it goes. It goes like this. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. That's the prayer. And, and there are parts of this prayer, this is probably why I come back to it over and over and over again. There are parts to this prayer that just sting. I mean, listen to some of these lines. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to suffering. Let me be laid aside for you, brought low for you. Let me be empty. Let me have nothing. Those are lines that, that sting because those are lines of perspective that I need to hear a lot of times that, that this isn't about me. That for me to be a Christian and to follow Jesus is really about living for his purposes, whatever that's going to look like in my life. And so I come to this prayer and I, I come back to this because it reminds me of living into God's purposes for me for our, my family, for our church. I come back to this prayer over and over again because I need to grow, continually grow, to make sure that Jesus is the Lord and, and not me. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out from 1 Kings 21. Because the end of this episode where you've got this vineyard and, and things are going south, um, at the end of this episode, there's this, this moment of repentance where, where Ahab, he, he comes to terms with the, with the choices he's made, how he's hurt people. And there's this, this moment of repentance. And, and in this, Ahab experiences grace and mercy. And I, I, I point this out because even Ahab, who has lived for himself from day one when we met him in the Bible, everything has been about him. Even he can find grace and mercy as he comes to the Lord and he remembers that the Lord is actually the Lord. There is grace and mercy. And so for you today, maybe as you hear this and you think to yourself, you might think, you know what, I need to spend some time making sure that the Lord is actually the Lord instead of myself. Because because maybe you've been making things about yourself and there's a time of repentance that the Lord wants to bring us to, to, to find freedom and forgiveness that we might walk differently with Him. Maybe you're going through a season of high stress. You've gotten your eyes off of what God wants and put it on, on your problems. Maybe it's a, a season of conflict with someone else. You're focused on your own hurt instead of God's purpose for that relationship and that person. Maybe it's a, some big decisions you have to make. Maybe it's something else entirely, but, but your eyes have shifted from what the Lord has for you. So what I want to do as we close today is we're just going to take some time to pray. And, and as we pray, we're going we're gonna to ask the Lord to forgive us for the ways that we've made life about us instead of about Him. 
And we're going to ask the Lord to forgive us for how we haven't denied ourselves and lived for what He has. We've lived for our own concerns instead of the concerns of God. And, and then after we, we pray, just a prayer, a short prayer of repentance, I want to invite you to pray with me wherever you might be today. And maybe you'll even want to pray out loud. And we're just going to pray this Wesley Covenant of prayer, a, a prayer of, of recommitment of our lives to the purposes of God, whatever they might be for us. So let's pray together. And so Father, today, uh, we do confess that so often our eyes turn inward and we start to live for ourselves. We are disobedient to what you teach. We get our minds full of stress and anxiety. We take our eyes off of your purpose. There's decisions we have to make and sometimes we make these decisions about us instead of what you would have for us. Or maybe there's conflict and we just keep going into our own hurt instead of living into forgiveness and, and the purpose that you might have for us in, in life. And so God, today we wanna ask you for forgiveness, for mercy. And maybe there's some specific things that we need to individually lift up to you. Things where we have missed the mark because we've made it about us instead of your purposes in the world. And so God, today, would you forgive us? But, but Lord, we also want to recommit ourselves today to living for what you have. And so wherever we may be today, we, we join together our voices to pray this prayer, to recommit ourselves to your purposes for us. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O oh, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining us in worship today. Hope you've been blessed. Thanks to Stephanie and the team behind the scenes who helped do the production of things. Thank you to Marsha for that awesome song. Thanks to Spencer for taking us deeper into the Word of God and for applying it to our lives. We are so thankful you've been with us today. If, you've, if you found this helpful in your own walk, we encourage you to take a moment, share this with folks around you, whether through social media or through an email link. We'd love for you to share this. We're so thankful that you've joined us. We look forward to next week when we'll enter into week seven of the Elijah series, A Person Just Like Us. May you this week take the great things and the challenging things, take them to the Lord, and may the Lord walk with you deeply. God's best to you. Amen.